Julie, I want to pick back up on our Adolescent Mental Health Awareness Month that we're doing here. Um, we referenced it a little bit uh, in the episode just about uh, kids and their extracurricular activities and and all the different pressures that they have. And personal to us as sports medicine physicians is sports in general. Um, we both see a lot of young athletes and, and all the way up until professionals and even post-professional and kind of like what that looks like when they've, you know, put their bodies into it for so many years. And then in addition, myself personally, I, I was a collegiate athlete and, and played division three baseball. And I, I feel like there's so many positives that come out of sports, but I'm seeing so many pressures in the office. So you feel like you're seeing a lot of these things where you're kind of like in these awkward conversations with parents and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Cause it, it's so hard to have these discussions because everybody has their own priorities and, you know, and you, you want to focus on, you know, bringing the whole group together but it's also ultimately the the athlete the patient that's you know you want to create some agency and some autonomy in them too and it can be it can be sticky for sure yeah so i I was recently introduced to a book um the book is called take back the game and it is written by uh linda flanagan and uh uh, foreshadowing on maybe who we bring on to this episode (laughs) but 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 spoiler alert yeah yeah, right um the um there is a presentation of a girl in one of the early chapters of this that I want to read, because I think it really speaks to what we see in the office and maybe is why I really wanted to do this episode. So this talks about a sixth grade girl on a competitive travel team who got hit in the head and was badly concussed. Though her parents knew the dangers of allowing their daughter to keep playing, they waffled on how to handle it. If the girl sat on the sidelines for a month, another kid might be moved up to take her place. The girl with the throbbing head would miss out on exposure to high-powered coaches who might come to watch their games. She would fall behind her peers, maybe lose her position permanently, and then what would happen? The stakes seem super high. I think that, like, how often do you feel like you see that? Oh, my gosh. Constantly. I mean, not only in the office, but also with the teams and the organizations that I work with that are, you know, filled with young athletes and how I can't even imagine that pressure. When I'm in the room and we diagnose an injury at this point on a youth athlete, I feel like more times than not, I spend the majority of that visit talking more about the stuff around the injury. Mm-hmm. When can I get back? How long do I have to miss? What do I have to tell the coach? We've already paid for this. Can I get a note to get out of it? Are you mm-hmm. sure? It's really expensive. Then what will it be like in 20 years from now? Is this going to cause long-term damage? Is this something where I need to worry about, like, should they limit their activity? I just want to do the best I can for my child. Mm-hmm. And I firmly believe that the people in front of me are not bad parents and are not trying to do harm to their children. But again, it's like they lose perspective on kind of what's important. And I'm seeing it more and more. And this book has just been a huge, huge I'm not even really sure how to put words on it, but it has basically taken up the last few weeks of my life and most of the conversation with my wife, um, who I'm sure is ready to talk about anything else. Um, <laughs> so uh, with that, I think um, let, let's get into this. I think I want to talk uh, about the doctor friend question of like what happened to you sports and how can we maybe create an environment that's going to help our adolescents with their mental health? What do you think about that, Julie? I think it sounds perfect. Let's okay. do it. Let's do it. Welcome to your doctor friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen, and we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. All right, let's dive right into this. As we uh, uh, foreshadowed in the intro, we have a really <laughs> special guest today. We we have Linda Flanagan, the author of this uh, uh, book that has made it so I can't get any work done. 
Um, <laughs> it's just an amazing book. Again, it's called Take Back the Game, How Money and Mania Are Ruining Kids' Sports and Why It Matters. Linda's a freelance journalist, researcher, and a former cross-country tr- and track coach. She's a graduate of Lehigh University, and she holds master's degrees from Oxford University and the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, and was an analyst for the National Security Program at Harvard University. She's a founding board member of the New York City chapter of Positive Coaching Alliance, which I hope we really get into because I have familiarity with that with that organization and they're doing super great work as well as a uh, 2020 to 2021 advisory group member of the Aspen Institute's reimagining school sports initiative. Again, Aspen Institute, a really, really great place. Um, yeah. and, and hopefully something we can talk about her writing on sports has appeared in the Atlantic runners world and on NPR's education, uh, site mind shift. So just some, some small publications there. Um, <laughs> and she's a regular contributor to these also, and she's the mother of three, a lifelong athlete, and she lives in New Jersey with her family. So Linda, with that, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for giving us your time. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Um, I want to start off with a real easy one, but basically, why did you write this book? Well, uh, you know, I've been immersed in this youth sports world for, well, my youngest is now 24 since, he, you know, since for 24 years, let's put it that way. Yeah. And um, having been an athlete myself and remaining, I'm still a runner, you know, I exercise is uh, baked into my life. Um, I'm an enormous fan and believer in exercise. And um, then witnessing what was going on, both as a parent, seeing on the sidelines, and then most importantly, as a coach, mm-hmm. um, what I saw, how the world had changed so much and how serious it all felt and how what I felt should have been a harmonious kind of relationship between the coach and the parents, like, hey, aren't we all in this for the same thing, could sometimes be adversarial in a way that surprised me and um, it tr- and troubled me. And what I saw was just, I thought there were a lot of distortions. And I, so I just wanted to explore some of those. And that's what led to the articles. Um, and then, you know, those all kind of turned into a book. Well, we're super a- glad you wrote it. Um, and uh, how long did it take to put together? Well, I mean, I had done stories on this for the past five or six years. So, you know, I've done interviews for years, talked to people for years. And then, but the actual book writing took about 18 months. And yeah. it, it coincided with the pandemic, which made it an interesting pandemic project. Oh, there. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of people like, uh, you know, got into hobbies like making a sourdough starter yeah. <laughs> or like taking up, t- taking up, you know, little minor hobbies. But yours was writing of an extremely important and influential uh, piece of literature. Well, so, hope so, Linda, I give you a lot of credit for that. Thank you. Yeah. I just have my coloring book that I've been. <laughs> well, you're a doctor, <laughs> so you have that. <laughs> We're anyway. we're all trying to keep up with Taylor Swift and her five albums over the <laughs> yeah, past. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, what, yeah. what are what are some of the things that that really stood out to you through this research about like what you saw in youth sports, both anecdotally and also like in your research? Um, well, I guess what has struck me throughout is the unanimity from the medical community. That would mean you guys um, and scads of others that. What we're the way we're doing things now is not in kids' best interest. That the you know this focus on early specialization and more, 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 uh, more practice time, more games, more everything uh, is not in kids' best interest. And it just 
it struck me, and this struck me not only as a coach when I saw kids running around from one practice to another and, you know, leaving my cross-country practice and dashing off to ice hockey practice or skating or, you know, and on my son's teams when um, he'd have a game and half the kids wouldn't be there because they had to make their heat a basketball game and half the kids had to work there because they had lacrosse practice. So just this constant kind of running around to be at too many places. Um, so that bothered me. And um, so looking into then the research and finding their real, really was unanimity that this isn't good for kids. Mm-hmm. So why are we doing this? And that that's kind of like the impetus, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the real spark for the book is why are we doing this stuff that is not in, is not helping kids. I, I, as far as I can tell, it's making families miserable. My husband and I were like, this is nuts. We're not doing this. Um, so you know, how, why, how did this happen? Why? And, um, what do people need to know so that we can stop it? Right. Well, I mean, I think one, one big question that I have is who's really profiting from all of it? You know, I'm not trying to be like, oh, let's get into the conspiracy theory sides of things, but like, who's really, if, 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 if we're concerned that the kids aren't getting great benefit from it and there's a lot of potential downfalls and long-term issues both physically mentally you, you know and then their folks aren't getting a ton out of it like who's i don't know I, who do you think is actually profiting from from this this major change in <laughs> into overdoing it well i mean i don't it's not that i think um private clubs and teams just like mm-hmm. the parents you're dealing with they're not terrible people they're trying to do what's no. right for their kids and many people who start clubs and teams, they think, um, well, there's a demand. You know, a lot of mm-hmm. kids want to play. Parents want their kids to play. So they provide more opportunities. And it, it just kind mm-hmm. of, it's a system that it kind of takes on a life of its own. Yeah. And I think because we're such a competitive society and the people who play sports are really competitive, there's this mm-hmm. constant like more jockeying and this sense that if I do more, you know, it's mm-hmm. what... Um, I think this is the psych- sports psychologist named Scott Goldman, I think his name was, talked about ghost peer pressure. And I think mm-hmm. the sense that somebody out there is doing more and I better, or I'm going to mm-hmm. fall behind. I think that affects the way kids view sports and also the way parents view their need to get their kids in because everyone else is doing it. So we better. And so it's not that anyone is necessarily profiting. I mean, some companies mm-hmm. are and sports tourism is a big thing. They're profiting. You know, they could say we're just providing what people want. And there's some truth to that. Um, mm-hmm. But by and large, it's not in the best interest of the principals and it's particularly the kids. I think this mirrors a lot what we just talked about in our last episode with Rose Mativi. You're talking about how we model our adult behavior is how our children are going to follow in our footsteps. And so our culture of you know, hustle and grind and your productivity is how you measure your self-worth very clearly seems to, you know, seems to correlate. I don't know if you would agree with that, Linda, to how like, you know, these are kids that they don't have a workplace necessarily. I mean, if they do, they might have some job or whatever. But like this is how they are showing or sort of mirroring or modeling our behavior of mm-hmm. work, 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 do more, grind more, be better, mm-hmm. be best, that kind of and stuff. And also, it's almost like a status symbol to be, talk about how busy you are. You yeah. know, being right. busy is just like assumed. And, right. you know, also in terms of modeling, you know, when we as parents 
hover and fixate and, you know, our children are the center of the universe. Do We do everything for them. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also sending a weird message about adulthood and what it's like to be an adult. Like who wants to, who wants that? I mean, your right. kids are too young for it at this point, but as they get older and they, you know, their weekend tournaments and husband or wife or whatever the partnership is, the adults responsible split up and they never see each other. That's mm-hmm. not modeling, you know, an especially healthy adulthood or appealing adulthood for kids either. So, you know, the whole idea of what we're modeling, I think, is really important. Yeah. You, you, one of the things that comes up repetitively in the book um, is our obsession with achievement, mm-hmm. like that, that, and, 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 and that's parental, but then obviously passed on to our kids. And achievement can be used outside of sports, right? Yeah, we're, of we're just, our, everybody has to succeed and achieve. And I think that really comes through. You were just talking about per, our parents. And I loved your association between achievement and parental anxiety mm-hmm. and basically how, as parents these days, we're just super anxious about our kids succeeding and achieving. Mm-hmm. And so my question for you is, is this is that a new phenomenon or is it just different than it used to well, be? Well, I think, I mean, of course, all parents want their kids to do well. I mean, I think that's like a universal. And I, um, you know, I think about my parents who had five kids. I'm the youngest of five. And um, of course, they wanted us to do well and they wanted us to get good grades and do well and, you know, give it our all and play sports and all that. But it was a different, it was a different expression. Love was expressed differently, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine in a million years that they would have ever given up their, you know, the bulk of their private time to mm-hmm. their kids, soccer, lacrosse, whatever. They just wouldn't, they mm-hmm. just had too much going on and they had their own busy lives. So it never would have crossed their mind. I mean, it wasn't available, but had it been available, I can't imagine we ever would have done it. What's mm-hmm. changed is that, you know, kids, I love this phrase from Jennifer Senior, kids have moved from our employees to our bosses. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a function of that anxiety. This And this ha- this is a change, you know, at least from the research I did and the experts I spoke to, historians, sociologists, that it began in the 70s with the recession and worry about the kids, our kids' economic futures, and mm-hmm. then divorce picked up so there were more separate you know i don't want to call them broken homes but you know not two parent households anymore and then we had the stranger danger phenomenon Mm -hmm. which just made everyone freak out about the Mm -hmm. safety we have such a fixation on safety and it's it's amazing Mm -hmm. and so all of that just contributed to this feeling that the way to develop um healthy that our kids were a function, their success is a representation of our success. And that we, it is our responsibility to make sure they have every advantage, every opportunity, that we make every sacrifice to help them succeed and flourish in life. Mm-hmm. And that is a change. You know, kids are not always so central to their parents' well-being. And so yeah. that, you know, so then this link between how a kid does, how they achieve or don't achieve is because it's so linked to how a parent then feels about how good a job they're doing. It gets Mm -hmm. kind of uh, tainted and poisonous. So how a kid does is a reflection of you as a parent. And it's not like there has always existed to some extent. I'm I'm sure, you know, parents have always been proud and 
embarrassed by their kids, but it has just taken to a greater level in the last 50 or so years. You have a great anecdote about that, Linda, where you talk about when you were at your son's AAU um, oh. thing and you were kind of like, in in the book, you're referencing like who whose ego was I, like what was I feeling in that? Do you remember that <laughs> passage that I'm talking about? Like, can you reflect on your own personal? Was this um, the AAU or in the beginning? When it was the AAU one when you were kind of like we're in the car and he didn't even really know why you wanted to be there. Oh yes, you... oh my god, that was so stupid. When I think about some of the things we did, um, <laughs> and it really we weren't even that bad, honestly. But when he it was um, it was between his. Um, it was right after his junior uh, season, junior year of basketball season ended, and we, someone said, "Well, you know, maybe he should join AAU." So we did this. You know, it's like okay, he just finished. It was a good season. Maybe it'll, you know, keep him fresh or whatever. So he joined it, and almost from the get go, he did not like the team, like the experience. He didn't know the other kids. It was all very disjointed. It was like, who are these people? And this first game was in scranton pennsylvania and i took him there and it was a saturday morning and we were sitting in he wanted to go visit um see if we could find dunder mifflin we're dunder mifflin (laughs) (laughs) yeah well you know it should have shouldn't have taken too much research to figure out that they don't actually film in scranton Scranton. (laughs) but anyway we went to an address it wasn't there we're like so we went to the game and i'm sitting there in the stands and it's like a cold Saturday morning. Um, I know virtually, you know, a couple familiar faces, but no one really knows anybody. These kids are like sitting there, you know, they get called out to play. It was just the most enervating experience for all concerned. And I thought, what the hell are we doing here? What, what am I doing this for? He was like half in. I was like all out enjoying it because I thought he would like it. And then finally, we like when we left, I'm like, he said, I didn't like that. I'm like, we're not doing that anymore. And we're done with it. And that was the last we saw of AAU basketball. <laughs> I wish yeah, I had I wanna... that revel- realization earlier. I, I, I want to read what you wrote here because it, it, it speaks so it, you, you finished it. You said maybe this AAU, te- AAU team would have served other kids' interests. Perhaps it would have elevated their play and get them in front of the right college coach or recruit them and turn them into champions. But for your son, Paul, it was a soulless experience, an assortment of strangers unified only by their desire to impress somebody else, no matter the cost. And it took me, you, years to acknowledge how much your son's athletic career mattered to you and how much your his star performances, when he had them, shored up your ego. I thought that was yeah. so powerful. Well, I think it is kind of the unspoken um, motivation for a lot of this. It's it's kind of awkward mm-hmm. to talk about, but I, you know, when he was, my son Paul was a really good little athlete. He still is, by the way. Um, <laughs> he's not, he didn't play in college. He's not obviously playing professionally, but he was natural. He was good. He loved it. And when he was young and would get out there on the court and he would play well, I just felt, you know, <sighs> Look at me. I, you know, look at me. <laughs> look what I did here. You know, my mm-hmm. son is a good little dribbler. And it just felt, and I knew this at the time, that it felt irrationally significant. And, mm-hmm. and they, it kind of it bothered me. Like, why do I care so much about this? And then when he didn't play well, ugh, that was such a bummer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that feeling that we adults have, those feelings when our kids play either well or poorly or 
you know, somewhere in the middle. That is so much of what drives the behavior, I think, because we get so much out of it. That's mm -hmm. why parents go crazy on the sidelines because they, they are so emotionally invested. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't, I'm not exempting myself from that. I always want to say that. Like I had my, um, you know, I found my own ego gratification there in a way that um, I, I don't think it hurt my son, but it, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't right. You know, it was like a yeah. distortion and it should be tried to, we should be aware of that tendency as parents, that temptation and try to resist it a little bit. Not that you shouldn't be proud of your kids. Of course they do well. Yay. But to kind of like, okay, this is their thing. I think that's another big point I've always wanted, I've tried to make in my book talks is that the sports are for the kids. They're not for mm -hmm. us, you know, and there's that, that line has been blurred so much that mm -hmm. youth sports now are really many, in many ways more about the parents' interests and parents' needs than the kids. Yeah. And you spoke about being unanimous about it, too. It seemed like in your discussions with people that the vast majority of the interviews you had with like parents were unanimous on people who'd had kids that gone through it and regretted it. Yeah. That you didn't do any interviews with people like me who have a five and a two year old who haven't gone through it. And I'm like, yeah, I totally regret that I'm going to make these mistakes in the future. <laughs> like, but but how many of the people did you talk to who were like, yep, if I could go back and do it all over again, I would have done it the same way. It was perfect. I mean, I didn't talk to anyone who said that, you know, I mean, yeah. the, the, the most common um, reaction people had was um, or when they when they reflection, when they thought look back at it was that it just really wasn't nearly as important as it seemed. That's the other yeah. point I want to get across to parents. It seems so important and just, you know, friendships are severed, you know, over kids sports or mm -hmm. the conduct of a coach who might be a neighbor or a friend. You know, that mm -hmm. friendship can get severed because of what a coach did to that, to someone's child. And it just seems so much more important than it actually is. And this is the, the this is kind of another unanimous um, rea response I heard in, in my research that it just is not that important. And I wish yeah. I had known that at the time. And I think it's really difficult for kids because when you're, you know, you're having a growing, developing brain, you you feel things at such extremes. The highs are so high and the lows are so low. And it's so difficult to have, a, a, you know, a, a perspective about what's important and what's not. And if you're you're viewing the adults in the situation, you know, mirroring those extremes as well, it's got to be really kind of dysregulating and Okay. How do you know what, you know, like if you if you don't have the sort of even keel, like, hey, let's put this into perspective, adult role model person, then how would you ever learn? Yes, you know, like, I know. Right. That it is just we need game. to be the adults. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think also, you know, like when parents um, bad mouth the coach mm -hmm. and after in private with the kid. And. You know, the, what is the kid getting from that, too, like. Well, right. I thought I was supposed, I respect the coach or like, it's this mm -hmm. kind of weird, whatever these weird messages we're sending to kids about how important it is that, wow, this coach is not playing you and that's wrong. And, uh, you know, um, I think it must be really yeah. hard on kids. And it, it, in fact, to kind of make sense of how to handle these two res responsible figures in their lives, or maybe not just mm -hmm. two parents and coaches who are mm -hmm. trying to kind of 
guide them, it, mm-hmm. I think it has to be kind of overwhelming for a lot of kids. You know, they just want to go play. Right. Right. They don't need to have kind of a social construct of how, well, not even that. I'm just like watching their the adults in their lives behave like adolescents that don't have, you know, high cognitive function yes. as of yet and, and you know reason and 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 the experience and it's hard because i i mean i'm not a parent so I, i'm just sort of observing from afar mm-hmm. but I, I i do feel like my opinion is that uh and again take this with a grain of salt because i don't have children but i think we want to do the opposite of what we think the the earlier generation did wrong and so it's easy to swing to the exact like the polar opposite of mm-hmm. you know kind of maybe the hands-off parenting that our parents got mm-hmm. that kind of created the situation in which we grew up which you know maybe was neither bad nor good it just was mm-hmm. and we we say okay well I'm not I'm not gonna do that to my kids mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna break that cycle of and that maybe the extreme is to do it's to be the, you know, the helicopter mm-hmm. parent or the one that is, you know, I think what we're touching on here is living vicariously yes, through your kid. Right, and, right. you know, because maybe you weren't parented in that way and yes. your, your, your little self inside you is still longing for that, for that love and acceptance. Mm-hmm. And, and, and yeah, I just, it just feels like you're right. The, I think, Linda, you said it several times and I love that the, the word you're using is these distortions. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just, just distortions and it's creating this this whole new reality that we need to meet somewhere in the middle. And I think that's what your book yes, is trying to teach exactly, us all. Is, yes, that's exactly. Yeah. And you know what you're talking about is uh, the correction. I don't know if you've read Jonathan mm-hmm. Franzen's book, The Corrections, mm-hmm. but it's all about like what you, how you try to fix what you perceive as your parents' mistakes. And yep. then, you know, you create your own mistakes and then your kids correct and they end up more like the way their grandparents were. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, and I, it reminds me of one of the questions you gave me in advance, which was, um, you, you asked Jeremy, is this definitely worse? Like, is, in other words, is this all bad? Mm-hmm. Is there anything good out of this, you know, to come out of this, the way we organize youth sports now and, or the way we present them? And the only real thing I could think of, which was good, is uh, that so many more girls play. Yeah. Because that's the giant change, certainly from when I was growing up. Um, it was, I was, oh, been a runner since I was like 13. And, you know, it was mm-hmm. kind of uncommon to see girls running. Mm-hmm. Now it's like, you don't even, it, it's absolutely ordinary. It's unremarkable. Yeah. And the fact that more girls have opportunities to play and compete, I think is great. It's just, mm-hmm. it's all a matter of degree. You know, it's mm-hmm. a matter of degree. And if we just need to kind of like get it back in proportion, mm-hmm. that's what I kind of would like to see happen for for everyone, for kids, for parents. Yeah. I feel like one of the things you mentioned with the girls that stood out to me was also like the at the time that girl participation really increased, especially around Title IX, there were a lot of female coaches and now we basically have none. And it's basically been the exact opposite. Like the participation of girls has dramatically skyrocketed. Yes. But the participation and leadership of female coaches and leadership has dramatically it's been so ironic. Squashed. It's just mm. the, one of the most surprising. I, I knew that it would have been very surprising to me had I not known that for writing the book. But, you know, it dropped from at the collegiate level, 90% of women of coaches were 
girls' teens or women's teens were women. Mm-hmm. In 2021, it's 42%. At the high school level, and, and the numbers are kind of hard to come by because um, there's just no one really keeping track. But at least in one state, uh, at, a, at the high school level, it was Minnesota, 21% of head coaches were women and 28% were assistant coaches. And in youth sports, the last number I saw was like 27%. So, you know, and you can be sure all those women are coaching daughters. So think about all those boys who don't rarely have a woman coach. Mm-hmm. I mean, even their mother, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I think about that and people could say, well, what's so bad about that? But I think how strange it would be if you had a, or how how noticeable it would be if you saw like mm-hmm. a, a high school boys soccer team and everyone on the sidelines, all the coaches were women. That would be mm-hmm. so like, wow, what's going on with that team? Like interesting mm-hmm. and unusual. Mm-hmm. But if you see that on a girls team, it's like, oh, yeah, what's the point? Yeah. But so right. I just think it's really important or it's it's really unfortunate that girls are denied this kind of leadership example where it's just kind of ordinary you know it's not mm-hmm. you know the ceo of a company coming in and doing a talk once a year in the auditorium it's just everyday leadership that um, a coach coach demonstrates i think is mm-hmm. really important for girls and you know another observation i've had or thought i've had anyway if i can articulate this right is that if girls and boys generally see um, their adult role models in sports are men, then for girls, it would look like their athletic lives end when they're done either high school or college. Like, that's it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because what else is there? I mean, assuming they don't play in the few professional leagues for women. Whereas for boys, they can see, well, they all look at all these men. They have roles in sports. They're coaches, they're officials, whatever. They're, they're all over the place. And I, I think that sticks for, for girls to think, well, my athletic life is done. You know, that's it. After high school, mm-hmm. usually, if I get to play even in high school. So then continuing athletics for girls means, um, you know, um, fitness classes. Mm-hmm. And not the play and competition that more of the men get. I, I just think there's something lost there. Yeah, I would agree. It reminds me a little bit of a conversation that I had um, with the women on the WOMED, which is a women-led podcast that's unbelievably wonderful. Oh. Um, and yeah, Dr. Jacqueline Camardo, freshly Dr. Jacqueline Camardo, uh, she's an NP and now a PhD, oh. um, also played, she played collegiate sports. And we talked about like, She's like, I knew that my career would be over. There wasn't going to be an opportunity for me to Mm -hmm. play Mm -hmm. after college. And my my male counterpart athletes kind of had that 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 carrot and that 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 stick kind of Mm -hmm. dangling ahead of them. And it's just got to be so I don't know. It's a grief. I would would expect to have that. And then, yeah, and then not know that you had an opportunity to still have leadership in, in, in that, even if it wasn't continuing to play as a professional yeah. athlete, but yeah. did not really be able to use all of the experience and, and all of the great partnerships and, um, and all the things that you've learned from being an athlete for your whole life. Yes. And then yes. not being able to impart that on the next, yeah. the next group of people. It's got to be really just sad. Yeah. You know? Right. I mean, and certainly there are some women who do, but it should be, be no- I wish it were normalized. I wish it were just sure. like even, you know, like, 
it's yeah. routine for girl for women to coach instead of being sort of unusual. Yeah. Why do you think it is? Why do you think we've lost all the women coaches, at least percentage-wise? It may not be total number-wise, but percentage-wise. I think at the collegiate level, it's because after Title IX, there was all this money. Suddenly, suddenly women's coaches were getting, women's teams were getting, the coaches were being paid real money. So suddenly mm -hmm. these jobs became attractive to more men who would apply for them, whereas before it just mm -hmm. wasn't as appealing a job. And athletic directors tend to be men, and they would typically hire male coaches. Um, and at the lower level, um, I think certainly at the youth level, uh, well, I, I think all the way I put it in my book is like, you know, we mothers presumably have enough time with our kids and we want like, let the, let the father do this. Like if, mm -hmm. assuming it's a mother and father, um, around to take care of them. Um, mm -hmm. it's a way for traditionally for men to bond with their, uh, kids. It's kind of like mm -hmm. a socially approved uh, mm -hmm. way to bond with your kids for boys, uh, sorry, for men. And, you know, there's like the gender norms. I mean, I, when I was coaching um, my son's baseball team, he was in third or fourth grade. I was an assistant coach. And um, I think I was the only woman in the, at that level. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't know why. I mean, it didn't, it didn't make sense to me, but I was the only woman at that level. And I just think other women maybe felt a little uncomfortable, a little conspicuous, I don't know, a little, a little weird. Like, yeah. if I'm the only one, if, if there was only a few of us, what are we doing here? I have a, well, funny, I, I have a funny anecdote right. I want to say. I, my, my mom was very active in my youth sports. Uh, my, my, I, I played collegiate baseball, Division three, and I played basketball and baseball in high school and played every sport under the sun when I was younger. I loved sports, but my brother and sister both played sports as well. They both were division one swimmers, which is mm. its own nightmare, own nightmare that could take up a whole podcast. And mm. I'm sure we could talk about it. But, um, I, we ran into a, somebody I played baseball with when I was in youth sports recently, it was within the last year or two. And so obviously they're grown up. Um, and, they said to my mom, they remembered vividly that she was the one that taught them how to swing a baseball bat. That's cool. Right? And it was just so cool to like have that person be that, you know, she wasn't the coach. She wasn't like in a defined role, but she was there. She was participating mm -hmm. and, and, and he, he remembered that. And I thought that that was so cool. I hope you told um, your mother. He, no, he did. He visibly, he, my mom, my mom was oh, there. He told it there. to her face. Oh, that's so yeah. great. That's yeah, so he great. He told it to her face, which was so, which was so cool. But again, you're right. It wasn't in a formal role. She wasn't the coach. And, mm -hmm. and it'd be interesting to, to, to ask more of these people in that position. Like what, what, what did you, you know, maybe do some like narrative interviewing of, of, you know, like, why don't you want to coach? Like what, what gets in the way of that? Like, and maybe identify maybe some of what these barriers are. Well, I think um, it's also yeah. partly the time. The time mm -hmm. is is difficult because most coaching jobs are like after school. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you don't have childcare, if your kids are young and you don't have childcare, like that's the time when they come home. So it's like kind of, it, it, it doesn't line up well with, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. a life with kids. So are most yeah. coaches not parents then in that case? Well, I mean, I know a lot of fathers would come home, leave work early, come home mm -hmm. early to to coach their kids which you know that that again it's like a it's kind of a socially approved um mm -hmm. activity to leave work early for because you're coaching your kids and it's important right it yeah it harkens back to the invisible labor that a lot of women in cishet partnerships end up doing mm -hmm. so that 
to create other opportunities for their partners. Yes. And again, like it's not ideal and it's not great, but it's not it's it's silly to pretend like it's not existing, you know. Yes. And so having a domestic partnership that where people share the labor at home creates opportunities for you know, any gender to do anything with mm-hmm. with relation to their kids. So, yeah, I I I I, fe- I I see what you're getting at here, yeah. Linda. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I also have to say that of the the young men I spoke to who were had had women coaches, all were mm-hmm. spoke about. You know, I didn't speak to so many because there aren't that many, mm-hmm. but those who had mm-hmm. spoke very, um, n- not just fondly, but they had tremendous amount of respect for the these women coaches, and it I think it had a big impact on them mm-hmm. and how they see mm-hmm. saw women as athletes and women as leaders. And mm-hmm. um, that, that's why it's important. And mm-hmm. Agreed. Here, here. <laughs> so in post-production, Julie, I realized that uh, Linda's conversation is too good to cut anything. Uh, so yes. <laughs> in the interest of everybody's attention spans and also just the fact that this information <laughs> is so good. It's, yes. it's so good. Like we can have 10 episodes about this. And, Absolutely. and, and I, what, what we're going to do is we're going to cut here. At a point where I think the information presented at this part has been really interesting about like the sociology of youth sports and mm-hmm. talking about the history and how we got to where we are and what it looks like. And then let's transition to a part two next week. Um, yes. And everybody should hang with us because next week we're going to transition into things like injuries and overuse and burnout mm-hmm. and maybe some tangible stuff about actually how this is affecting people. So the conversation is going to pick right back up. It's so, so good. I was listening in post-production and was like just as engaged uh, when we were doing it. I, I was just, I was, I couldn't wait for the next part, but it, it was, it was getting long and I didn't want to lose anybody. Yeah. So part one done. Yes. Part two next week. In the words of Ira Glass, Stay with us. Ooh, that was good. (laughs) The amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. Mm-hmm.